This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life. Become an agent for other intelligences. And begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Multispecies Entanglements with Dr. June Harrower. Buenos dias. I am speaking to you in Spanish today because I guess I'm in a very good mood. Today on Life Worlds, we're going to get tangled up in a multi-species discourse. We will hear from Dr. Juniper Hauerwer, an ecology scientist who uses her multimedia art practice to investigate the human influence on ecological systems. Juniper is a founding member of the arts collective, the Algae Society BioArt Design Lab. She founded the environmental arts production company SymbioArt Lab and that wasn't enough. She's also director of the Art and Science Initiative at UC Santa Cruz, where she also teaches art. With Juniper, we explore the theme of entanglement through making art and science with other species. She shows us how art and science can be complementary and yet drastically different in helping to answer her research questions. And she will also describe her current art exhibitions which reveal the secret language of leaves, Joshua trees, mycorrhizal networks, deep plant evolution, and settler culture. Whether it's through art, beekeeping, scientific study, or whatever else inspires you, today you can ask yourself, how am I entangled in a web of other lives? How can I deepen this relationship so that it becomes a true collaboration? And have some fun with it. Without further ado, here is Juniper Hauerwer. To start off today, I want to recognize that you're one of the first artists to come on the podcast, and yet you are uh, wearing these dual hats of artists and PhD scientists, and you weave your creative narrative so so beautifully and so delicately with your science. So before getting into some of the individual projects that you've done, taking a bird's eye view of how you view your work and these different strands that you're bringing together. I think we live in a society where there's this unhealthy kind of trope that like you're left brain or you're right brain, or you're either scientific or you're creative. And breaking down those dichotomies seems to be really, really important, right? As a society, as we're moving towards how we creatively work through issues together. How have you come to discover those different parts of yourself? How did you come to discover the scientist? How did you come to discover the artist? And you're also a musician and a dancer, which I'd love to hear about. How did those first become apparent that they were important for you? And then the bringing together, did it feel challenging and or was it organic? Yeah, those are big questions. And I think just working between art and science and within and among and both as an artist and a scientist and then like trying to create this space in response to like de-siloing an approach to understanding the environment. And I guess it's been a long, very long journey. You know, I, I look at like, why does it exist like this? And 
you know, it's very conducive to capitalism, right? We live in a society that needs to be able to really label and put things into their place to be able to make them function as industriously as possible. And so the messiness and the blurring of spaces and disciplines, like it doesn't work really well. We really want to be able to, in the system that we've designed at this point, like push people into this areas of specialization, um, which has its benefits, right? And you can get really good at something if it's the one thing that you study in the one way and, you know, that's your life focus. I know there's some people who do that really well and really love that approach. Um, so it's not all capitalism, but, you know, in the way that funding structures are set up and jobs and employment, especially in the sciences, it's really, really conducive to um, just continuing to like whittle specializations in areas. I mean, like the field of botany, I remember when I wanted to study plants and I was coming to school at Berkeley many years ago as an undergraduate and I was in love with plants and I wanted to be a botanist and that was my dream. And I was having to pick my field, my major, and botany didn't exist anymore. It was like that was too broad. And so the fields, you know, have been like carved and narrowed and specialized and like deeper and deeper and deeper. So I chose plant biology and genetics. And within that, then you go even deeper into your areas. So it's been this great joy to kind of backpedal in some ways and find the ways that different disciplines can speak to each other and overlap. But also, I mean, science and art are very, very, very different. And I know there's been a lot of interest more recently in really celebrating and pointing out the overlaps, which I understand why people are excited to do that, to say like, look, there's not this big difference between the way that we approach knowledge and research and, you know, asking questions creatively, but the actual methodologies of how that all shakes out are extremely different. And now I've been like pretty inundated in these different fields and just see like, wow, yeah, it's, they are very different ways of approaching question asking. And I guess to get at your other question about my path with this. Fundamentally, I am an artist and I have been secondarily approaching my career and also my curiosities for the natural world as a scientist. And that was because science was, is attractive and exciting, you know, in some ways, but it was also like I'm a first generation college student from a low income rural community. And the thought of studying art was like, absolutely not even something that you would ever do. You would not go to college to study art. That would be a crazy waste of money. And like, what would you do with an art degree? What kind of career? I knew this incredible artist where I lived in the desert. You know, it was a constant struggle of poverty and so while I had been making art my entire life as a small child, you know, I really just decided to lean into that way of asking questions about the world. And I was pretty good at both. And so as I was moving forward and had some really fun volunteer experiences with plant places in the desert, 
I just kept going with ethnobotany and botanical kind of methodologies and questions while always maintaining an art practice. And so when I did get into Berkeley, um, which was a very exciting opportunity, I chose science and then would go hang out in the art department all the time and was always making art and living in a wild artist space in Berkeley. And then, you know, I got very jaded by the science community and wanted to become an educator. So I taught public school in Oakland for a while and then left that position to go uh, travel abroad and learn to speak Spanish and um, live as an artist in Buenos Aires. And that was a very powerful and important time in my life. And then I went back to doing field research in the tropics. And then I came back to the Bay Area to pursue an art career. And then again, into graduate school where I felt pressured to, you know, choose that focus where I had to pick what I was doing. And science seemed like the right choice because I would get to continue doing research with these systems that I so deeply love being in and asking questions about these biological systems and natural worlds and communities. And Santa Cruz uh, offered me this really incredible full fellowship to pursue my doctoral studies there. And they, you know, they have so much interesting work happening in the natural sciences, but also in art and visual culture and feminist studies that I was really excited to be there and ended up pursuing my work as an ecologist. But again, always hanging out in the art department and having, you know, an ongoing art practice and making friends and connections and doing so much work as an artist that eventually my science committee was like, fine, you can do part of your PhD as an artist. And we're kind of excited about that. And I was really like pushing some boundaries there. And then I built an art and science program at Santa Cruz and we got some funding for that where I started teaching a class that brings these ideas together and developing programming and an artist residency that's very science focused as well and environmental um, sciences inspired. And then the art department started a new environmental art program there too, which is really exciting. And actually, so recently I was invited because I had never done an MFA, right? It's all of my professional career, as it were, academic-wise, has always been in the sciences. And I, I've i taken one art class in my life. And I was invited by UC Berkeley to get an MFA fully funded. And so I'm doing that right now. That's so exciting. <laughs> wow. Yes. I wonder how many incredibly talented people from a young age feel like they're forced to decide, you know, and especially people who care about the living world and nature and they're deeply creative because people who tend to connect with nature are, but then there's no job in that. There's no money in that. And so I have to go into this more narrow field and that, you know, when you share that story, it makes my heart sink a bit because obviously you're facing something that many are. And then I love how the thing that we long for the most, we can then create it in the world and you created the art and science, you know, you're now heading this art and science center that tries to bring those worlds together. Do you feel different? Uh, and you spoke to it a little bit in terms of like how the question asking is different, the techniques. How do you feel different when you're doing art versus when you're doing the science as it comes to translating the lives of these other species? Um, and we'll talk after about your work with the Joshua Trees and with your art show, Botanical Entanglements. But in each of these cases, you've been interpreting the lives of the living world and these relationships. 
and you're interpreting them on one hand through the science, uh, data collecting, analyzing, etc. And on the other hand, you're creating really funky art pieces around them, like apps and all these kinds of things. How do you feel different and what are the sensitivities that's required for each of those um, approaches? I found that with my science practice, that it was the creative question asking that was the most exciting part of it for me, doing the research and understanding where the need is. Like I'm definitely drawn to questions that exist in some state of urgency, environmental urgency, social justice urgency. So identifying and thinking through that process and generating questions is like such an exciting part of the research for me. And then being in the field and being out with whatever system and species and life forms that I'm working with, like it's really so wonderful and incredible. But the actual methodologies, scientific methodologies, I do not enjoy that much. And it's the reality that I had to kind of come to terms with. Like ecology is a lot of counting over and over and over. And you just this repetition that I think for some people, there can be this beauty in the monotony and it becomes almost like a meditation. But in general, for most people I know and scientists, it's a grind. It is hard work and it is not that enjoyable. It's enjoyable to be out in these incredible places that sometimes you only get access to as a researcher or perhaps special access, or maybe you have an excuse to spend a long extended period of time there. Yeah, it can be almost clinical by need and definition of the science methodology and process. You know, your hypothesis testing, right? You have very conscripted and like delineated methodologies that you are using to collect and think about your question and your data. Conversely, as an artist, there is none of that. (laughs) Not entirely true, but there's so much more freedom to be in and be with the organisms, the lives that you want to get to know better and the questions that you're asking. I will say too, with arts, that one thing I found is that there are conversations and questions happening in the field of arts that are in a way that you are almost expected to be responding to. It's a culture of practice as well. And there's a lot more freedom. But if you would like your work to be shown and you want to be getting funding and granting, you need to use the right language. You need to understand where the culture of practice is around that field as well. So I've really kind of come to see like, oh, yeah, there's not freedom, complete freedom here in the arts either. Um, It has its own rules. Yeah, so each space has its own freedom and constraints. Totally. In, In your work with the Josh trees and the impacts of climate change. I was so moved by looking at the videos and reading about that because this was a land that you really grew up in and spent a lot of time in and watching a species, um, an entire life form that you think may not be there anymore in the next 50 years or 100 years. Coming face to face with that kind of extinction is obviously heartbreaking. And a lot of your work there was documenting and understanding the relationships between the Joshua trees and the soil microbiome and the moths and so on and so forth, and a place you have a deep relationship with. I was really struck by what you shared in something that you shared with me beforehand, which was how you needed to do the art in a way to keep yourself sane 
And you've written, you know, having the art component saved me. It gave me a way to humanize all the science. And so I'm wondering if you feel in a way like other scientists who are working on the climate crisis and extinction in this kind of clinical counting abstracted way, if you feel like they would benefit from having some form of art or creativity to express, oh shit, like, okay, I'm seeing this disappearance in front of my eyes as you were with the Joshua trees, but then you made such potent art around it that it helped you channel your emotions. And I wonder if you feel like other scientists should be more uh, supported in those outlets for the difficulties that they face. Yeah, processing eco-grief is like a whole thing. And I know some people are in therapy. For me, art is definitely one approach that I have to even working with and conceptualizing these big issues. And, you know, for me thinking about with Joshua Tree specifically, how it was very personal. They are a plant that I conceptualize as part of my identity and my home where I grew up. And so there is something that's very jarring about that in many ways. And art is a way to process those emotions and that grief, but also to think about other ways of exploring life and my connection to it and its own rights of existence and thinking about just new ways of conceptualizing life and what we're doing on this planet um, through art. But you know, also connecting to other people about the work that's happening and the complete crisis that is happening right now. And granted, has happened many times on the planet for different cultures and different segments of life. But yeah, we're witnessing a major climate extinction event right now. It's heavy. Yeah. Could you describe verbally, because this is a an auditory experience, mm-hmm. some of the interventions that you did in the Joshua Tree research that contained the science, but were artful for you and that were those avenues of connecting others to the subject and also moving through your own emotions? Sure. For many years, I've done a painted series, a multimedia painted series of Joshua Tree soilscapes because you know I'm a soil biologist as well as Joshua Tree. I work with their pollinators, but I deeply, deeply have spent a lifetime in the Joshua Tree root rhizome and um, soil spaces and working with their mycorrhizal fungi, which are the soil fungi that grow into the plant roots and out in these vast webs throughout the soil foraging for nutrients and water and trading it in exchange to the plant for access to sugars. But they're incredibly complex. And I wanted to share this immense complexity that I was finding and that I was just, you know, experiencing in these different ways of, of getting to know the plant and its entangled multi-species world, right? Because there is no Joshua tree by itself. There is the Joshua tree community. And part of my work and my approach was to really think about the existence of the tree in the community space and sharing some of that immense complexity and these entangled worlds. And so I would work with the Joshua tree seedlings and the different fungal community and grow um, the seedlings to visualize root growth patterns that I would incorporate in my paintings, which also utilized seed oil that I extracted from Joshua tree seeds um, as a way to fractionate the paints that I was working with and create these very organic 
spaces on the canvas that looked like some of the fungal interactions I was seeing in the soilscapes, but also under the microscope. And so there's a bit of confusion of scales. It looks like landscape topographies and also soil fractioning, but it also looks like things you'd see under a microscope. And then I would include real Joshua trees from my field sites that I had been working with for years, um, some of the trees that then went on to become part of my work with a dating site that I created for Joshua Trees as a way to just be kind of playful because some of the work gets really serious. And I would see so many people out with their phones out in Joshua Tree National Park, which is where I was doing my work and thought, okay, well, I don't like cell phones out in nature very much, but here they are. And you know, maybe this is another way to just interact with people and kind of co-opt this tool and be really playful about it. I did this social practice type project where I invited a lot of different artists and writers to write dating style profiles for the trees and made little music videos and did tree carvings for relief printmaking that I have shared at many, many festivals and events for people to meet different Joshua trees from my field sites. And there's a scavenger hunt and you can go out and you can, you know, form some kind of connection. And my inkling was like, okay, well, this will be a somatic experience that people can have with this tree in this art making little thing that we're doing together. But yeah, I was surprised by how much people really connected with the trees through this and got so excited and sent the trees love letters to through the site. So it's been really fun. And then the work has gone on to, I've made animations about my research in the park, but then also other animations, just thinking about what it would be like if we could actually witness the tree dying, because this idea that a hundred years, they could all be gone. Well, you know, in some ways that's really fast. And I see that as being very fast. A hundred years is also really long and it might feel like, well, you know, I don't really see it happening when you see something dying quickly, it has a lot more urgency. So I made work that speeds that up and theatricizes it in a way. And, but also, you know, uh, with a soundtrack that is very Western music, kind of Hollywood influenced as a way to implicate the whole Western mythos surrounding the American West and how that intertwines with Joshua Tree mythology. Yeah, I got really into that more recently with just how cowboy culture in the American West is a kind of uh, part of this whole problem. You can trace that back to Manifest Destiny and um, the settlement, the frontier mentality and the settlement and claiming and taming of the West and you know how important that is to just reframe the way that we exist within our natural communities and you know the violence that has been done both originally to indigenous people that occupied and lived in these areas but then you know continues in many different ways how different is it to have the frontier control and tame mentality to the mentality that is writing love poems to a tree. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's kind of, they're, they're very different in a certain way. I, I love that you did that dating app. I actually went on it um, on the side and read some of the things. It was really, really sweet. I love to chat about what it's like for you to be in a collaborative relationship with these species as you make art for them and from them and with them. You know, you spoke about multi-species entanglements in a way you are entangling yourself as you're like, okay, seedling, um, tree, leaf, we're going to make art together. And what it feels like to come close to another species and to work together to make art. Is that an accurate way of maybe describing 
some of your process that it is like an interspecies collaboration? Yeah, well, I'm really interested in that. And it's something that I'm thinking a lot about and I'm hoping to approach better in the future. I feel like you can go down these philosophical conundrums of agency and how do I ever truly get consent for said collaboration? And it can get a little bit prickly, but basically I'm trying to approach it almost like a reframing of what anthropology did some years ago. Anthropologists, their history as scientists is so fraught with the way that they approached working with people and places. And they have done so much work to try and rethink all the methodologies they use in research to create opportunities for people to tell their story as opposed to telling the story for them. And so I'm trying to some ways, like this is my academic brain saying this, like I'm trying to create spaces that allow, you know, plants and multi-species to tell some of their stories, but also just wanting to be playful and get close to some of the incredible majesty and essence that is this other life form. (laughs) And in doing that with art and working together in this way, it's a dynamic process and it's ongoing and I'm constantly having to rethink and then also making myself laugh about how annoyed scientists that I know would be with some of the questions that I'm asking and the way that I'm conceptualizing the other. What would be some of those questions that your scientists would be like? (laughs) Oh my God. If you get into concepts of like sentience in plants, if you start to anthropomorphize, which, you know, like, and that's not what I'm trying to do, but when you start to put those kinds of framings on things and like, you know, especially the words like agency or consent, like you're going so far out there right now, but it's philosophical and exploratory too. There's physiological aspects to that. We are an electric field. Plants have electric fields. They can sense when we get close to them and vice versa. Maybe we can talk about botanical entanglements, which is a show you did recently at Berkeley. How did you even think about approaching the plants that you then, you know, quote unquote used or worked with in your show? Like, was there a particular way of being sensitive to approaching them? Could you feel like when you approach the plant, it felt you coming close? I'm fine to wade into that space of a little bit of anthropomorphizing because I think that there is a two-way sensing that does happen. Yeah, with botanical entanglements, I was really excited to go deep into plant histories, looking at deep plant evolution through vein patterning. I got to work in a lab at UC Berkeley, created a residency with a plant ecologist there. And then the work was shown at the UC Berkeley Botanical Gardens. And I was able to work in the lab and use some of the techniques that the scientists were doing to decay plant material to expose these leaf veins. And they would just give such incredible vein patterns that would tell these stories that, you know, it was a kind of leaf language for sure. And, you know, in choosing different leaves, I was picking plants that were in my local community because it was important for me to continue to work with plants that I had a relationship with. And so plants that I had been growing for a very long time or I would see and spend time with and knew some of their ecologies, both the built environment and then also the different species that interacted and were interacting with them. And I started this process also of uh, imaging and embedding images within the leaf by using sunlight and the leaf 
became like a photosensitive material that would respond to the light, creating the image. And the images that I was working with were reflections of the local ecologies of the plants. And as I was thinking about these different processes and telling these visual stories, I was also trying to take to some degree like a feminist perspective of what it meant to work with these plants. And I feel like science in many ways does not approach questions with those methodologies. There's so much violence in the way that we ask questions in science. For example, just the methodologies of collection and like a lot of destructive sampling, you know, needed to answer our questions. And again, this would be something that really makes scientists angry when I talk about it. I would say annoyed. And some of them, depending on the conversation, would be like, oh yeah, when working with plants, it's okay. You wouldn't do that with people or it gets, again, into these like prickly territories. But as an artist, I get to ask these questions and be a little bit more direct in those ways and thinking about it. Yeah. So with botanical entanglements, I was embedding images with leaves that had dropped, decaying the leaf matter to look at the veins and then expanding them really large using um, photographic imaging of the leaves, highly magnified, blowing them up on these giant silks and then staining the leaves with cochineal. So you could see the vein patterns and cochineal was interesting to me as it had these very complicated, deep colonial histories. That's another interesting interspecies entanglement with humans. You know, and then I, I was inviting people to kind of stand before the majesty of so many years of evolution with these plants and these plant languages. And there were multiple other components to the exhibition as well, but I'll stop there in case you want to take it in another direction. I actually like that you paused there because um, there was an interesting approach that you took with that part of the exhibition, which were those very large blown up leaves. And I saw a picture of it and that, you know, you're in this sort of large hole and then there are like these silks hanging down that kind of act, I think you called them portals, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, portals that you could walk through. But I like that in this instance, you did take a perspective of seeing through the eyes of the plants because you thought, actually, what if they don't want to be seen like up close and all of their vulnerability and nakedness? What if they want to hide a little bit? What if they're shy? What if we want to respect their privacy? Which is very animistic. It's very like you're seeing through the life world of the plant and you're saying, oh, can we hide you a little bit? You need consent to be seen. I'd love for you to speak a little bit about that and that decision that you made as an artist to obscure some of the plant and how you did it and why you did it? Yeah, as I blew the images up so large, I was thinking like, wow, this felt so vulnerable <laughs> to take this small leaf. And it just made me think about science and the ways of looking that we look at the other and just these histories of objectification. And it felt kind of counter to some degree of what I was hoping for with my work, bringing up this idea of the science gaze for me and what does it mean to be viewed through powerful institutions where, you know, I'm doing this work. Then I was, of course, thinking about ethnography and those histories of photography of people and places and representation. So in response to these queries and meanderings, I decided to give back some of the anonymity to the plant. And so you wouldn't be able to recognize it, species or the individual by blurring the 
outline of the plant and fading it into a background where I also did some abstraction of some of the veins blown up and they kind of create this shadow effect. Um, So there's this abstraction in the background, um, but then also it just gives a bit of abstraction to the leaf hole. And I also had another series of silks um, that weren't as large. So the ones we're speaking of are 12 feet long by about four feet wide. And there were five of them and I was calling them portals, but their name also is the temple guardians, because as you walked into the space, they really like stood over you and they kind of had this ethereal, otherworldly feeling of other beings, you know, people who would come in and talk about it. It really created this place that felt like a place of worship. And it really took me to another place that I'm really interested in, which is this dwelling in the slippage between science and mysticism and how with science, we only really ever asymptotically approach the truth. That's part of the journey of a scientist is to try and like find some universal truth, you know, which of course begs the question, like whose truth, you know, it's this ever seeking desire to find these answers. But the more you look, the more you realize you don't know and you think you're getting closer, but you're not, you can never figure it all out. And there's this incredible space of mystery there um, that is so beautiful. And I think for many scientists, that's also part of why they do the work they do. It's really profound to get close to that space. And so some of the other silks in the exhibition were also smaller. They were like five feet long and um, printed leaf veins. And I embroidered them on the outside to obscure as an act of moderating our ways of looking. And I was seeing that as another act of care to the leaf. And also through embroidering the outside of the plant leaf and working those stitches within and into the plant leaf, I was tracing and following the swirls and whirls of these deep like evolutionary patterns. In a way, I was training my hand to speak the language. And, you know, that to me felt like another form of communication that I was learning and being with the plant. And I feel like that's something I will continue to do. I had them in a space that they felt good to show and share with the exhibition, but they will continue to change as I embroider them and think about that. In that area, I wanted to have us turn our gaze onto the human stories of that area where I was showing the work. I wanted to make it very place-based and um, found some of the oldest imagery of the European settlers of the area before it was a botanical garden where the exhibition was seated. And it was was a cattle farm. And I found some really great archival images that I went back through and I really highlighted all of the human impacts on the environment using the same shade of the cochineal pink, which is made from the beetles that I had mentioned before that I used to stain uh, and create those fuchsia pink colors that made the, the highlighted the leaf veins. And I did that with the images of the human impacts on the landscape. And I rendered them very, very small and printed them on microscope slides, on glass slides. And so you had to go and like peer into the microscope to look back on our own past of the area and just some of the changing histories there. And I thought there was something really interesting about taking that history and rendering it really small, that landscape scale, inviting people to look back on that through a microscope compared to the small leaves that we usually look at under a microscope shown very, very large. And that could shift some ways of thinking about human plant importance. Yeah, it strikes me so much that as you speak about these acts of care that people can engage in if you have permission from a landscape. And that's, you know, a whole philosophical 
spiritual component of it, but also this act of care brings you closer to some mystic experience of like, wow, this life is fascinating and beautiful and I'm trying to serve it by at least having us understand it better. And then as an artist, you can have this act of care of playing with the dialogue around how we relate to plants and species. That reminded me that you had another project I saw on your website, which created a book of California's bees, if I'm not mistaken. And you spoke about the bee decline and the biodiversity, but the art and poetry was there too. And you got people to write haikus, uh, little poems Mm -hmm. to the bees. So it's like, wow, can we like speak about these difficult subjects, bee colony collapse, but can we bring in that poetry and that care, even in those conversations where things are a little bit emotionally laden? And there's this other thing that you wrote, you know, which is first we need to get people to care. Art can connect people to difficult concepts at an emotional level and then helping to increase understanding about things like species loss. So it strikes me that a lot of the thread through your work has been like, okay, caring, like, can I care as I'm doing this? Can we get people to care emotionally by seeing this art? And I just feel like there's a really important invitation there for the science and the art world to be close together in that aspect of like, we all care about the same thing. Yeah. And then how do we get people to act? That care is so important to cultivate. And that's why my constant battle in my life has been, what can I do to affect the most change that I love doing? So it's like, I want to love it, but I like, how can I affect the most change with the work that I do? And I keep coming back to like, oh boy, is it public school educators? Are they the ones like, maybe so, maybe it's the teachers. And I did it for a while and that job is so hard. Oh my gosh. But you have the ability to like really shift culture it's a slow change. I mean, you have the immediate effect of just being there in these little people's lives. And then college level as well. Like, absolutely. You know, I love that work that I get to do is working with my college students. So education in that broad sense is just so critical and important. But then like on the immediate action sense, you have activists and kind of this meeting point of where the activism and then like the legal activists come together and they create a lot of change. And that is in a direct response to the way that our systems are set up. But I've just seen how my research as a scientist and like my publications and the data that I collect, and it actually goes out there and it can interface with and be used to affect real species protections. And that's actually happening right now with Joshua trees. There's all of this action happening because Joshua trees were given species protections right now while they have been considered for listing uh, as threatened, and then they would be given more species protections from a lot of the utility scale solar that's going to be going through the desert, you know, destroying many, many, many thousands, thousands of Joshua trees. And development as well. I mean, there's a new article just came out in uh, mid-April by the New York Times about all of the Airbnbs in Joshua Tree National Park. And it's crazy. It's like, it's just so depressing. And like people going and land prospecting to build their Airbnb, you know, and I'm so excited that people love the desert and are connecting with it, but also like, please stop that. Like That's ridiculous. And so Joshua Tree protections are one way that you stop certain aspects of development and, and you create pause for much more responsible and respectful 
development. And so, you know, that's another position. I really appreciate the work that those people are doing. Yeah. I mean, you know, as long as the Instagram looks good, right? Um, (laughs) Sorry, it's a little bit cynical, but perhaps a bit true. Just a closing question. How would you encourage people who are maybe budding artists or, you know, fully fledged um, in their artistic expressions? How would you encourage them to connect to these environmental issues and to connect to the lives of other species through their work? Like what, what advice would you give? Any parting words on that for people? I would say have an art practice and just embrace it and let it be a part of your life. And I hope that for everybody, whatever that art practice is, whether it's a walking practice where you just walk and spend time, maybe you're taking pictures and you're, you're just paying attention and moving slowly and thinking and asking questions. And maybe you like bird watching and that's your, your artistic practice or listening to song, you know, bird song or cleaning up plastic from the oceans. Like that's another art practice or painting or, you know, sculpting or whatever it is. But I think that there's such a deep soul connection you can get if you have a life practice with the arts, even, you know, absolutely, if it's not something that is making money, but it's something that feeds your soul and allows you to connect with the world around you. The other really important thing is to see what other artists are doing in this work. And there are so many environmental or eco artists out there. I love eco art space. My friend Patricia Watts started that. They're amazing. Yeah. 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 And so go to Eco Art Space, check out all those artists and just like Instagram, Pinterest, like watch talks and go to talks in person. And then, you know, also like, please go to gallery openings and shows and just go wander around and see the artwork that people made. Artists are so excited to have their community come out and if they don't know you and just say hi and tell us that you appreciate the work. And if you're an artist, like reach out. Do art workshops with other artists. Those are so wonderful way to connect with people and so soul nourishing and super fun to learn new skills. But yeah, I just really like, I can't say enough how great it is to just basically have some kind of practice. And in terms of activism, I mean, have an activism component of your practice and that can mean so many different things. But basically there are organizations like the Center for Biological Diversity and the NRDC that are really good places to just see what they're highlighting in terms of the natural world. And they have all kinds of actionable items that you can do. That's really, really helpful advice. And I actually saw on your website, you have a bunch of resources of books and other artists' work. And I think it's really cool that you have that like open source on your website. So I'm also going to put that into the show notes. Juniper, anything else you want to add before we sign off? Oh, I guess um, since I'm here and today and I'm thinking about it, and it's Earth Day too that we're recording this. True, it is April 22nd. Joshua Tree, species protection, it's a really important one right now. Actually, all that needs to happen at this point is convince three of the five commissioners to vote against the recommendation that was given that they don't need to be listed. And that just means applying public pressure at this point. If you go to the Center for biological diversity, they have some actionable items that you can do if Joshua trees are important to you. And I recommend that. I hope that everybody listening just really cultivates their own personal connections to the incredible multi-species world we live in and finds ways to just better exist within it. 
together with their neighbors and all of their more than human neighbors. Beautiful closing words. And you've given us some pointers in this conversation about how we can do that. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alexa, for the invite. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks time where we'll be talking about nature and cities and just where life can be found underneath and around all of that concrete. I would love to hear from you. So please do reach out to me on the website liferoll.earth where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library that ranges on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list and I'll see you back here soon.